Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fault, I'm the editor of The Toolkit, and my guest today is director Marielle Heller, whose terrific new film, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, starring Melissa McCarthy, is in theaters now. And this week's podcast is brought to you by another great movie, uh, Hulu's documentary, Crime and Punishment, which examines the United States' most powerful police department through the efforts of a group of active duty officers and a private investigator who risked their careers and safety to bring to light harmful policing practices which have plagued the precincts and streets of New York City for decades. Amidst a landmark class action lawsuit over illegal policing quotas, director Stephen Mang chronicles the real lives and struggles of a group of black and Latino whistleblower cops and the young minorities they are pressured to arrest and summons. For your consideration in the best documentary category, and now my conversation with Mari. I think uh, IndieWire readers uh, know you most, at least the ones I haven't seen this movie from uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl. So uh, it's one of those things that we still, even when we write about it, still pops and <laughs> meet so much to people. I'm wondering, you know, I always wonder that follow-up after that Sundance hit. I, I talk to directors about it, and they, it's always a stress because it's like suddenly you're a known quantity and they, there's this curious curiosity and I, of like what that next project's going to be. But I, I have to imagine it, it's almost doubly so for you because my understanding is, is that Diary was something that was had its whole, I mean, you adapted it, it was a stage play, I believe you were the star of it at one yeah. point. Yeah, So I think no matter what, when your first project has been a huge passion project or something that you've spent, I, I, I think I added it up and it, I actually spent 12 years on Diary. <laughs> so I was always saying eight, but I think it was really all told from the time I started adapting it all the way through when the movie came out. It was 12 years or something like that. No, that can't be right. It was a long time. Whatever it was, it was a long time. And um, 2007. Oh, no, no. It was eight years. Okay, okay. sorry. It was 2007 you was when Sundance, I started. I 2015 and 2015 summer, is yeah. when it came out. That's right. Okay, either way, it was a huge passion project of mine and something that I spent so many years creating and it was hard to figure out how to follow it up because you think, how could I ever love something as much as this? It's like having your first child and being afraid to have your second child, I think. How could I ever love something as much as I've loved this thing? And especially the way people responded to it was so positive and I think a lot of people felt like I made that movie just for them, which made me really happy. So. There is it, a, it felt it felt such a void. And yeah, I, I feel I, I've heard you say this before, where it was like, "This is the f- and I, uh, the film that you kind of wish was there for you when yeah. you were a teenager." Yeah, and so I'm, that's a personal thing, but it's also something where that connection with that audience, I imagine, is a little bit is, is pretty. Yeah, uh, pretty yeah. At the same time, I didn't want to get stuck worrying about trying to be perfect or trying to make the next step in my career mm. be something perfect because I think, you know, I got sort of freaked out when I saw statistics about female filmmakers and how long it takes for a lot of women to make their Mm. second film compared to their male counterparts and I just thought I want to keep making movies and I loved actually directing and I love writing and I just felt like I got to get back on the horse and if I think too much about this I'm going to get stifled and I can't move forward so I'm just going to do it and um, in many ways Can You Ever Forgive Me felt like the perfect thing to kind of take my career to the next step because it felt both very different from Diary because it had nothing to do with teenagers and very little to do with sex but it also was a story about a woman who doesn't really have a voice and whose story doesn't get told and it felt kind of connected thematically for me to the things that I really care about and it had so many things that I loved 
about the story and I live in New York and it felt like a story about my city and I, I loved it for all the same reasons that I loved Diary and for so many different reasons. So it felt different enough and connected enough and it felt like something that was going to be great to follow up. And it's a script by uh, Jeff Witte and Nicole Hall Center mm-hmm. and we don't have to get into this, but the, Nicole, I think, brought it right up to... She it, did, yeah. Right up to that point. Yeah. I think that's always so hard when you have that film made in your head and then you go and... Yeah. It, it was interesting. So, I mean, it was very, I'm sure, very painful for her to have a walk away from that, but there there seemed to be something I had read where she was your lab mentor at Sundance. She was one of my advisors at the Sundance Labs, yeah. So we had a relationship and we were friends. You know, I've, I've said this a few times that it's almost like a miracle when a movie actually gets made because mm. all of the stars have to align and everything has to line up in order for... I mean, there's more movies that fall apart than anybody has any clue. <laughs> it really is much harder for a movie to get made. So this movie had, as many movies do, yeah, many incarnations. And I, I wasn't a part of that. I wasn't part of anything of when it fell apart. I just kind of came to it when the pieces were being brought back together. And Anne Carey was really the person who was the through line with this project. She had adapt- She had optioned the book from Lee. She knew Lee. She had brought Nicole Lee on. Only, Lee, Lee only died like, like four years ago, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, Anne had actually been the one who had brought Nicole on and had brought Jeff on originally and had put together the first incarnation of it. So she had been holding on to it and trying to kind of figure out the next way for it to happen. Um, and so she was the one who brought it to me and when Melissa was sort of interested in it and then we kind of revived it. So what, I mean... It's a wonderful script, but I imagine there's, there's, I mean, beyond the fact that, you know, it's now a Melissa McCarthy vehicle or mm-hmm. rather than, but also I imagine there was also some changes just by the nature of what you were interested in that kind of happened to this project. I'm wondering what, both, both the adjusting it for Melissa, but then also, you know, yeah. you know kind of what you kind of more focused your eye on. Yeah, for me, um, I thought the story of the forgery was very interesting, but the thing that I was connected to was the friendship between Jack and Lee. And I sort of related and loved this story about two sort of outsiders in New York who shouldn't really be friends and on paper their friendship doesn't really make sense, yet they work. Mm. Sort of reminded me of Midnight Cowboy a little bit. Like they, these two people who sort of save each other at a really desperate moment in their lives. Um, and so I sort of refocused the script even more on their friendship by and building up the Jack character a little yeah, bit, right? Yeah, by building up the Jack character and by really kind of giving it an ending that I felt like was a little bit more emotionally satisfying. Um, and kind of letting it play out in all of its tragedy and humor. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what I love about the two of them is there's nothing... There's nothing overly emotional about them. Like, even in their most painful moments, I love this idea that they kind of found a way to have a wicked laugh even in their darkest moments so that was where I really focused the script and I think it's kind of clear in watching the movie that that was the thing I was the most interested in um, because I think those are the the things that I sort of know how to shoot the best and (laughs) edit the best and kind of focus the emotional anchors of the story on. There's a thing also there's a comedy element this film is, is yeah. dealing with some like heavy stuff and like but it's very funny it's yeah. very funny and you 
you and Melissa find, and I guess also Richard, you find this wonderful balance of yeah. how to bring that in. There's been a lot of thinking about like, you know, what this role reveals and Melissa as a performer yeah. and, and stuff. You know, and I kept thinking about why does this film feel so unique to me? Mm-hmm. And the one thing I kept circling back on is that kind of tied all those things together is, is that it's that we usually just don't see, we see these movies, but we just don't see it with the female in the mm-hmm. kind of curmudgeon and yes. cantankerous role. No. And that also kind of taps into like, I think, unleashes an aspect of her as a performer that mm-hmm. is also where really so drawn. I think of that role in Bridesmaids and things and like, there is something about her that kind of wants to do that, like Jack Nicholson, like kind of Totally, Jack N- Nicholson is a good <laughs> reference for it. Cause I always, I know when people would ask me like, Are, were you worried about the character being unlikable or did you think, and I thought if this was a male character, nobody would ever ask that. Just you because, still get those, yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, is there's something so joyful about seeing a character who's really curmudgeonly, who says the things that nobody else will say that mm-hmm. we're all thinking and who sort of just doesn't, take the world shit you know she's just she's a bit of an asshole but she's also really funny really smart really witty and I think there is a lot of humor in the script there's a lot but it's all um it's all in the language more than it's in any kind of physicality Mm -hmm. you know um I think in that way it's sort of a different kind of I think we're really used to seeing she's one of the best physical comedians we have in the world right now and um so I think we're really used to seeing her do a lot of physical comedy, and this is a very, I don't it's know, language-based kind of, comedy. But yeah. it's also a different kind of physicality. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, there's, there's no, it's not as broad, but it still calls on all of that skill. No, she yet. was saying in one of the Q&As we did, I think that she was thinking of Lee as like a turtle or something, somebody with a shell or an armadillo or something. Like she was... Lee is such a grounded, weighted character who's almost like moving through with the weight of the world on her shoulders. And then Jack comes in and he's like this bubbly, light, sparkly character who plays off of her heavy, weighted Lee in a really nice way. Is there an element where that cadence of what she brings, I mean, you had to like kind of work the dialogue to to kind of fit her and the, or is there more of an element that she's just she can make it hers and it doesn't matter no I really didn't adjust the script when it became Melissa uh-huh. it was in so many ways as soon as I read the script I kind of couldn't picture anybody else saying those words and playing the character she was incredibly respectful to the script and um, and I think tried to make it her own without altering it she wasn't Improving, she was just really finding Lee's voice within herself. And um, no, if anything, I, I altered Jack's character to, <laughs> to meet Richard and to make him British and to kind of fill him out even more. And he's so we know so much less about the real Jack Hawk. Mm. He's he's in the book, but not that much. And so, um, but no, I didn't have to change a word for Melissa. She was she embodied Lee from the top of her head to the tip of her toes so perfectly. You said something, uh, I think it was probably around TIFF, that I pulled up. I want people to feel like they were transported back to 1991 New York and to feel like they hung out in gay bars and dusty old bookstores for an hour and a half and heard some of the best stories of their lives. Okay, that sounds, you know, that sounds great. 
but you did it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I mean, but there's because no, there's an element. Like, I mean, there's a lot of things shooting on location in New York right yeah, now. Yeah. There's a lot of them trying to be 1981, 1977. You know, and there's, you know. There's an element of, you know, how do you excavate the city and get there? An element, mm. But there's something about the way that you used um, New York. Mm. Um, not only just in the specificity that was evocative, but it also is like a state of mind. Yeah. Like even just that when she gets fired and you get that opening skyline and everybody's used a skyline before and you use some old jazz and everybody's done that before too. But like there's an element here of just what this feels like and to be in their shoes and be these type of people. Yeah that um, is remarkable and I, I don't know how you did it. So <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, I think I live in New York. I love New York. I'm an artist in New York. I also long for a New York that existed before I came to New York. I came to New York in 2005. Because you're a Bay Area girl, I'm a right? Bay Area person, yeah. 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 Which I don't mean girl, but you do. You're no, no, Bay yeah, I'm a Bay Area girl. That's true. And I think I... Um, I grew up romanticizing what living in New York as an artist was, the grit and all of it. Like, I didn't romanticize it as something pretty. I romanticized the real artist living of New York. And um, so I wanted to capture all the beauty and also the pain of that feeling of being an artist who's struggling in New York. I mean, something that's a real connection between Minnie, who was my character in Diary of a Teenage Girl, and Lee, is these are artists who use their art to kind of struggle through pain mm -hmm. and it's something obviously I relate to and I think every artist and writer can relate to um, and whatever city you're in you see that city through the pain of your kind of craft I think mm -hmm. and so it was always about trying to capture what Lee was experiencing where she was emotionally and trying to show that through the way we showed the city but then getting really specific into this book literary mm -hmm. world. What I love about New York is like, no matter what your thing is, whatever thing you're nerdy about, you're going to find your people in New York mm -hmm. who are just as obsessed with that kind of thing. And you're going to find your niche. It's not a city about just one type of person. And so it was really important to kind of get into the antiquarian world and the literary art collectors and who those people are, because they are specific. And I love trying to kind of, I don't know, ground this story around these real places. And, you know, Lee really spent a lot of time in a lot of the places we shot. Julius, which is the oldest gay bar in New York, where we got to film. And a lot of the bookstores we filmed in were places she really sold. So it was about kind of capturing it from an emotional standpoint that would reflect Lee's world, but it was also finding the untouched parts of New York that still felt like that to us. How much was shooting in winter in New York kind of part of that? Because there is something, <laughs> there's something that feeling of being in a, an old wooden bar and it's snowing outside. There's something beautiful about it, but yeah. it's also there's something uh, very bleak about the city in the winter. Yes. You feel it more. Does that sound, I don't know, that I'm, I'm assuming that was a choice, but I have to imagine there's also kind of leaning into that a little bit. Right? Yeah, it was a choice and it was something that we got really lucky with because I always kept saying I was hoping we would get a lot of weather with this movie. I think there is a dichotomy that happens to living in New York, which is you are bumping up against other people all the time, and yet it can be a very, very lonely city. And there's something about being inside warm with the cold elements outside, knowing you're gonna have to go back out into those elements, which just capture living in New York. And that, that 
loneliness and that weird calm and quiet that comes over the city when the first big snow hits. So we really just got lucky because I hoped for a certain amount of snow and then we got it. And on the days when it did snow and blizzard, we sent more cameras out to keep capturing it. Um, and I kind of had this idea that it would be so cool if it ended up snowing almost as a theme around her slight romantic interest with Anna, uh, the Dolly Wells character. Mm. And then we just got lucky that it actually happened and snowed on one of the days when we were going into the, her bookshop. And it just felt like this, I don't know, perfect, pathetic fallacy, I guess is the word. But, you know, some it felt like a perfect metaphor for her sort of emotional state and that feeling of loneliness and cold and that your heat is practically going to get shut off if you can't figure out how to pay your bills and what that feels like in New York City. There's an element, and Tamara Jenkins was a filmmaker who I think just did this recently too, on her New York movie, where there's an element of you don't need to, like, I know you're on the Upper West Side, like I can tell this, but I don't think that that matters. Yeah. It, it, but there's something about the geographic specificity mm-hmm. that relates to these characters. It's almost like one of these details that I think does kind of work in a way. It doesn't matter if you're in Nebraska, you kind of get something about that. Yeah. And it, it seems like there's something like being able to access certain locations that feel 91 or that were like yeah. they were in 91 and, and being able to also not like have to like go to Newark to like, yeah. <laughs> to like no, do we it. we shot right? all within the city and did, we were really aware of trying to make sure we were connected to the real places that we lived. She lived on the Upper West Side. There's something specific about somebody who lives in the Upper West Side who's like an artist who's holding on to their rent control department in the Upper West Side that's very different than somebody who would be living in the village or who would be living in the Upper East Side. Like, you know who that person is. If you live in New York, you know the specificity of these different neighborhoods so much. And um, But that's like a bonus. I think it works, though. It doesn't matter. Do you know it doesn't it, matter. It does, yeah, it's it, true. It, there's something about it. I think it's to... a subconscious yeah. part of these characters, too. Yeah. And like... You know, the fact that she actually traveled downtown to drink at Julius's is just this sort of weird detail that I love Mm. that most people who don't live in New York wouldn't really think about. But there's something about it that I'm like, yeah, she traveled to find her people. That's Mm -hmm. so great to me Um, because you easily could have seen her just hanging out on a bar on 72nd Street and drinking. But you're like, no, no, she went down to the village and drank alone. Like Mm. she took the subway to I don't know. There's something wonderful about that. And also I think there's just a transient nature to both of them and the way they kind of move throughout the city and um, that we really tried to capture. Well, you know, one of, one of my favorite scenes is um, the first night that they meet and they hang out. Mm-hmm. And he, he, it's kind of subtle with the dialogue. He's clearly doesn't, oh, that'll work for me. I'll go there. And, and they mm-hmm. say goodbye at the door. And there's that one shot. He's in the foreground and she's entering his building and she looks and she kind of knowingly, and the audience kind of knowingly knows mm-hmm. he's he not. He lights his cigarette yeah. and then goes the other direction from where he said he was going to go. You know, I mean, we eventually do find out he's he doesn't have a home. But it speaks to, it's a beautiful moment and it speaks to the this kind of love that you have of these characters mm. and this kind of transient New York. But there's also this thing with the Jack character that's also loaded with history of gay men in 1991 yes um you know no there's a political context to it which was really important to me that was sort of the the first thing i added to the script actually was the line where jack says i have no one to tell all my friends are dead 
Mm. Like it was like very important to me that we in subtle ways reference the AIDS crisis that's happening that's surrounding both of them and their community and that they are sort of orphans for different reasons, orphans of their friends and people. Neither of them have anybody. Lee, because she sort of pushed everyone in her life away. Mm. And Jack, because all of his friends are dead. And he says it with this very offhanded kind of dark humor. There's no feeling sorry for himself in that moment. It's just kind of, it's not even a thing. He just says it and they move on. But hopefully we as an audience go, oh, right. This is New York City, a gay man, 1991. What is his life? What are his friends? What is the political context for this? What is the social context? Who is this person and what are they living amongst? I think, though, the thing about it is, is like, I think the reason a lot of people steer away from that yeah. is there is an element of it's like a lot to bite off. Yeah. And there's a fear that you're not going to deal. And the thing, right. that, the thing that I really appreciated about what you did is, is that it was subtle in the way that you could access it, which almost yeah. gives it a bit, like rather than explain it away, right. or go, it, it would have it been worse if we went, went into that. But the fact yeah. that that's like surrounding it and you've accessed it in these very beautiful, subtle ways that we're aware of it. Right. We're never trying to hit anybody over the head with any of it. It's much more, it, it isn't what defines these characters. Mm-hmm. It isn't what, defi- you know, their sexuality is not what defines these characters. The fact that she's a lesbian and he's a gay man are not the things that define who they are. There's mm-hmm. so much else that is important to them at this moment in their lives, but it is the truth of their circumstances. The truth of his circumstances, he's a man living, um, you know, amidst the, the AIDS crisis and it eventually takes him. Oh. And that was something that was true about the real Jack Hawk. Um, it wasn't very explained or didn't go into much detail in, in in the book, but it was really important to me. I thought there was something really nice in thinking about the fact too that through the AIDS crisis was it was sort of the moment when the lesbian and gay community really united, especially in New York City. That for a lot of men, lesbians were the the people who ended up taking care of them as they died. And that these had been sort of two very separate communities that in this moment were joining. And Lee and Jack sort of represent that in some mm-hmm. small way. They are two people who are kind of coming together in this moment in time. And um, yeah, it was always it was always something that was in the back of my mind. And I never wanted it to feel preachy or like we were giving a history lesson. I just, as soon as I, you know, I, it just was an important detail about the context of who these people were that I wanted people to be aware of. And we tried to do it in other subtle ways. Our production designer, Stephen Carter, we had like an act up um, little poster in the background of Julius and, you know, little things that just sort of reference where we were in that moment in time. But there's something about the way that you direct. Um, cause I, this is a movie that I loved the first time I saw it and I had to go back and see it again because I had no clue I couldn't explain why it was working or what was going on. <laughs> and, and, and there's something very uh, solid just kind of building off that is that, you know, I even think about the way that you're able to access some things uh, without having to go into all that exposition and stuff. You know, the, the one of the other ones that I really loved was the, um, I don't know if it's not a date, but the Anna and um, yeah. Melissa McCarthy's yeah, character. Yeah, sort of date. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and she can't. There's an element there of her personality that automatically speaks to like whatever that background was with mm-hmm. the uh, Anna Deaver's character, where mm-hmm. you know, there's this element of just being able to see that she, the minute something, that feeling of soon as there's intimacy or closeness, 
has to back may, off and yeah. sabotage it. Yeah. And, and there's an element there, though. I'm, I'm wondering if you talk. I mean, it's a beautiful scene, and maybe we could just use that as a way. But the, that idea of never wanting to have to explain this is who the person is, but showing it to them, it's yeah. also something they're seated. I mean, she's a wonderful performer, but there's an element of like how. How do you get to that? Is this, is, yeah. this a, is, this a, is this a matter of like having worked with Melissa, figuring that out? I yeah. mean, I know there's words here that, that are powerful, but I mean, there's a, there's yeah. a, there's we a staging a lot, element. We talked a lot about that exact subtlety that you're hinting on. Um, you know, I remember kind of getting the note from somebody of like, is it clear that they're asking each other out on a date. And I was like, no, it's not clear. And nor should it be clear because that's what it feels like to be a gay woman in 1991 and not know, you know, and not being somebody who wears their sexual orientation on their sleeve and not knowing if somebody else, you know, this sort of um, slightly dancing around the issue moment. You know, Jack is a character who wears his sexuality on his sleeve. Lee is not. She's somebody who sort of moves through the world in a much more protected, um, not closeted, she's not closeted, but she is not, she's very private. And so her interactions with a potential love are therefore shrouded in these layers of mystery where they're trying to read between the lines. So, so much of what's being said is about what they're not saying. And, um, and I found that beautiful and exciting. And I do think we tend in film to over-explain everything. It's like, I don't know why the note is always, is this clear? Hmm. Why is that the best thing? Why is clarity always the best thing? Isn't subtlety and nuance sometimes the best thing? Isn't letting the audience lean forward and figure something out it's always more, it's always it's, it's always more powerful when it's you allow it to be in our heads, I think. It's, yeah. it's not even the mystery, but almost this letting us add the two and two in our heads so that we figure yeah, it out. It's much I more powerful. I think there's something really, I think there's something really getting lost in our desire to overly clarify every detail of a script and make sure that every person in the last row could understand every single thing that's happening the moment it happens and no one has to go home and think about it at all. That's just unfortunate because some of the joys of storytelling are doling out information slowly and letting the audience catch up and letting people figure things out and question things. And part of what I loved about that scene is that as we approached it, everybody had a slightly different take on why things were happening the way they were happening. You know, Dolly had a feeling about how her character was approaching it, and Melissa had a feeling about how her character was approaching it. And I had an overall feeling about which twists and turns Mm -hmm. could make the scene work and how and it's like there's all of this hope that gets built up through the state of maybe she actually has found somebody who could appreciate her. Maybe they would be a good match. And then it slowly falls apart and you watch it crumble and you're trying to figure out why did she sabotage it because she can't let herself be happy. Did she sabotage it because she knows it would never work because this is somebody she's there relationship is built on lies is it because she can't let herself be happy is it because she's still hung up on her ex you know i like there being a lot of layers to it and that the audience gets to figure it out can we back up for a second you're just talking about your two conversations with the two actresses that are carrying that scene and the the kind of conversation that you're having Mm -hmm. what is your process in that sense Mm -hmm. of is is this conversation that you're you're relaying to us something um a rehearsal just talking to your actors about 
the script? Is it is it something? And I'm also trying to figure out. There's an element here, an elegance and a simplicity of your staging, how you choose to shoot. Yeah. And so I, I, there's there's something that's very interesting. I mean, the fact that you're good with actors and, and are incorporating them is not surprising to me, but there, there's an element of process of ABDC that I'm curious how you kind of go through. I mean, I love actors. I am an actor. I, I feel like I actually kind of speak actor in the way that at least I understand what a difficult thing I'm asking of an actor when mm. I ask them to embody a character and to put themselves fully emotionally into a moment. Um, I think that's something that is hard for some people who have never acted to really comprehend. It's a it's a really tricky thing. Um, that doesn't mean I don't ask a lot of the actors that I work with, because I think I do. And I rehearse if at all possible in this scenario. I don't think we really did get to rehearse with these two women, but what we did, we start we start every scene with a private rehearsal. We read through it. We talk through it. We talk through any issues they have. Sometimes I have sort of private conversations with each of them if I think it would be helpful, but usually it's really more of an open dialogue where we talk through the beats and we um, kind of explore the scene together from a very sort of theater perspective, which is like you break down a scene like, this is what your objective is at the beginning, this is what you want, this is what you want. Here's a moment where I think you stop yourself or, you know, actually just walking through the beats of a scene the way we would mm-hmm. in, a th- in a play. Um, and if it's a well-written scene, hopefully everybody's sort of on the same page about what those beats are and how they mm-hmm. should build. And then, um, and then it's just about letting them bring their wonderful gifts to the table and take those tools and let it hopefully blossom and blossom and blossom as we shoot. And then, and then, does the camera last? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the camera is last with me, which is probably, you know, not always the best thing. But usually, it's figuring out exactly what the emotional arc is, figuring out what that means in their bodies, and then turning to Brandon, or in the case of the movie I just made, Jody, and going. Did I just really screw screw our plan up? Because usually we would have had a plan about the camera mm-hmm. based on having picked the location and, oh, let's do this table and let's do this. We'll have her here, her here, and maybe she'll get up at this moment or whatever. We would have come up with something in our head. And I usually kind of throw it out the window when I'm working with the actors. And then I turn to the DP and go, how much did I just screw us up? And hopefully they go, I think it'll work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they say, it would be a lot better if she stayed seated. And then we go, okay, let's see if we can work with that. So yeah, it's usually, I mean, the conversations about camera are hugely important. And in some ways it's both the first and the last moment. Mm. It's sort of, how are we gonna tell this story visually? And then it's working out what works emotionally and making sure that that is is gonna work. And then we can kind of go back and readjust the camera. Your cinematographer on this project, uh, Brandon Brandon Trost, Kind of, he's built a reputation for shooting a lot of comedies that yes. don't have to suffer through poor lighting. Um, exactly. Uh, the the uh, he's not a comedy <laughs> DP. He just is a great DP who comedians who realize they wanted their movies to look good. Have but I'm wondering using him. <laughs> but, I, but I'm wondering though for this one because there is a comedic element to yeah. this, but not not to the degree of what we're talking about. Some of some of Brandon's other films. The decision of the look of this film, mm. um, obviously part of this is a feeling of New York to, 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 to kind of match that, that feeling that you want, but there's also an element of like, how much 
are, how dark are we going to go? Yeah. I'm just wondering if you could talk about like kind of the thought process and kind of that collaboration. Of I mean, where... the most important thing for us was always the feeling. So it was about creating a look that felt true to New York in that era, that felt analog and true to the 90s so that it couldn't feel too digital or too clean or too perfect. So we shot with these new Pan- Panavision cameras called... Um, the DXL, we were the first movie that ever finished with that, and we were doing large format, so it was a 70 millimeter movie, which rather than being, we didn't pick that because of like it being a big landscaping movie, we picked it because it gave a certain kind of depth of field that felt very intimate, actually, with the characters. So Brandon is just really good at helping me understand what different visual styles will do emotionally for mm-hmm. us, because for me it's always about how it feels emotionally. And there was something about the way we were filming this. And it was always about, we always talked about dust. (laughs) We always talked about light and dust and this feeling that it's a series of rooms where the windows haven't been opened in a long time. And there's old books with hundreds of years of dust on them. And how do we capture that? All right, we got to go, but just one last one on the way out. Mr. Rogers isn't really about Mr. Rogers, is it? No, not at all. I mean, it is, and it's not. I mean, Tom Hanks is in it, and he looks like Mr. Rogers. I've seen yeah. that. But it's, uh, I mean, I'm just wondering, and I, I don't want spoilers or anything, but what, what was it that you've kind of found your way into with this, this project? Well, I'm a mom, and I care. You know, I grew up on Mr. Rogers, and my son is growing up on Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which is the modern-day iteration of of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I know what you're talking about. And, they won't. Yeah, and... Um, <laughs> For me, it was just, it's its all the things I'm thinking and caring about in the world right now, which is raising a good person in my child and caring about feelings and our humanity. And the movie is really not a biopic, but it's about Fred's message. And his message really resonates with me, which is about giving voice to our emotions and our feelings and helping us navigate through the tough parts of the world with more compassion. Yeah. Well, this is a wonderful film. It's still in theaters. Everybody should go see it. And um, congratulations, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you.